this past weekend, you went to that seminar down in Florida, uh, advertised as the clinic, as we've seen on the socials and uh, on Simply Faster, kind of some pretty big dogs. We had uh, Les Spellman, Tony Holler, uh, Tony Villani, and then uh, Joey G, who's uh, been blowing up lately. Uh, we were talking a little bit about it before we started recording, but Matt, what were your uh, your initial thoughts heading down there? Maybe uh, if you could kind of recap that fun airport story uh, <laughs> that you were kind of just sharing with us a little bit too. Honestly, the nicest part about moving to Florida is the fact that I am been able to drive to three different clinics and everybody tries to come to Florida. Yeah. So that's been super nice, not having to fly everywhere. Um, that's a great point. So yeah. On, yeah, on the way over there, I got to pick up uh, Joe, Joe Stokowski and Andrew Sugg at the airport. I never met Andrew beforehand, uh, but Joe, with all of his charts and stuff that he puts on Twitter with the the pounds per square inch, and the uh, he's got a simply faster article just breaking down the forty. That's really interesting, um, and that kind of got my ball rolling as far as the pounds per square inch. But picking them up at the airport, Joe called me. He's like, "Hey, man, I got this uh, other guy that's going to the clinic. Do you care if he rides with you? Sure, why not?" And then turns out Andrew had interned at liberty under dom for a first semester which obviously we've small, all we've all been at liberty at some world. point so yeah super super small world they were good dudes but got yeah. breakfast with them talked a little shop it was good to to ask joe some questions on that pounds per square inch chart because i know at least with my kids at mm-hmm. the, the high school level i'm like none of my kids are going to be at the top of this chart ever I don't even know how a high school kid gets to these like numbers that are way outrageous compared to what I'm seeing. Like all my kids are around. I think the mm-hmm. chart goes up to well, it depends on how fast you run, but maybe like a six, something seven, something crazy on the high end. And most of my kids are like a two, on it, and it factors in their their height and their weight. And uh, you're looking at two two point mm-hmm. one for most of most of my kids. Um, my higher kids I have are like 3.0, a couple 3.1s, 3.2s, but like the 3.0 is a kid that is, that is 6'2", 220. And so that kind of puts perspective as far as on the, the pounds per square inch. Can you explain that chart for a little bit for anyone who might not have seen it before, might not have seen it? Yeah, so that pounds per square inch chart, if you look up Joe's stuff on Simply Faster, uh, he's got an article out on it. But with that chart, it basically has uh, miles per hour, how fast a kid runs on the top side. And then in a kind of a grid format, it takes uh, to find the pounds per square inch, you're going to take their uh, body weight and then divide it by their height in inches to get the pounds per square inch. And then that number kind of fits in on the grid somewhere uh, based off of their miles per hour on their fly time whatever their fastest miles per hour is mm-hmm. and with with joe's chart i break it up into tiers uh, when he references it he talks about colors i just do tiers one through seven um and the most dominant teams uh are basically filled with kids that are in tier three and four uh three four five and then six and seven if you've got a seven kid then you need to call every division one program and let them know who you have <laughs> in your backyard. Uh, but yeah, yeah. your dominant high school kids or teams are going to be filled with tiers, threes, fours, and fives. And then your elite kids are at the top side, but you're going to have a bunch of kids that are in the ones and twos for an average high school 
for ha- average high school athlete. And it's been super uh, helpful for, for me and with the football coaches because it's giving them a number to look at physical potential that's not a bench press, a squat, or whatever. It's now factoring in body size and how fast they run. So it's giving them this number that's like, hey, you know, Bob over here may not be your your best linebacker, but you might want to find a way to get him on the field. He might be a better option at a defensive end than linebacker because of X, Y, and Z. So it's a really good way to, to rank what I'll call the physical potential of your kids and to kind of give that neutral outlook versus sometimes coaches can get kind of biased on the kids they work with of, you know, I like this kid more or less and I, I don't necessarily look at this other kid, but turns out he's got a lot more uh, physical potential. Mm-hmm. I need to pick your brain more on that. Cause I have a bunch of good data um, for heights, weights and sprinting uh, with the 1080. So just look, I pulled up Joe's article here and like I have athletes that I know have poor acceleration uh, but better top end uh, speed, so to speak. So it'll be interesting to look at some of that and bounce ideas off of you. Yeah, and I think you'd have to look at... Must be nice. <laughs> I think you'd have to look at your your top tier would be NHL guys at the end of the day, like getting, getting their yeah. you know heights and weights and seeing where everybody fits mm-hmm. to then see how it compares to, you know, division one club and all that stuff. So I was going to say, you might be surprised with hockey. I think it might be just be a different animal on the ice because there's so many like visual variables. I think that tie into hockey. Oh, for sure. Yeah. The, just the skill of what's going on during the game. Yeah. Uh, it's like anything, but just cause you're the fastest doesn't mean you're going to be the best. Uh, yeah, for sure. Nice. So all that went down uh, before you even got to the clinic there, Ross. So uh, what else? What other uh, what other good insights do you have for us? What were big takeaways or the big kind of rocks that stood out to you? Yeah, so we showed up at uh, this essentially giant warehouse where uh, Valani trains out of and where this gym is at. And it's essentially a bunch of different businesses in one and then there's this gym located in it. Like there was a youth basketball game and all this, all this stuff going on. So we go, we go in and obviously start talking to a oh, bunch wow. of coaches. It was pretty, it was pretty cool. Cause you got to, at least I got to meet a bunch of dudes that I hadn't, hadn't met in person and interacted with on Twitter and different things a lot. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was cool to talk to them and uh, connect there a little bit. Um, and then beforehand they had a couple guys just speak, just NFL guys and just talking about, uh, Tony and taking some Q and A's and things like that. So that was pretty, that was pretty cool. Um, then Tony, Tony got oh, up and ta- cool. talked yeah. for a little bit. Obviously he talked about feed the cats and that whole mantra. And then, uh, then it was less and then Joey G and then Tony, uh, spoke at the, spoke at the end. Um, Tony's was actually pretty, pretty good in that he had, I think it was more of like a, I've heard the, I've heard that presentation a bunch of times now. And so he had a couple yeah, little nuggets. I think I thought that were, that were pretty good. I mean, he just, he broke down his rules of 
feed the cats and then kind of the how the hows of it which is kind of essentially how we train at, at this point um is big rules were yeah. uh you know winning making it fun building apex predators having healthy athletes and then never let today ruin tomorrow and then you broke down as you know the, the hows of it the the little details um the the one detail that i that i liked that i hadn't necessarily heard from him before was his uh don't chase the 10 which is basically not you're not going to be able to get a 10 every like a 10 out of 10 every single day like if you ask somebody how they're feeling they're gonna Mm -hmm. say that i'm a 7 out of 10 today like it, it just never happens you know it's a 10 out of 10 is super rare so if you're shooting for seven out of ten, you're going to be a lot happier than trying to shoot for a, a ten out of ten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've seen him in uh, write that in a couple articles, but I like that. And he he didn't break down. I know you asked. He didn't break down the atomic workout. He's just got that um, listed on YouTube. And that was kind of good to watch. Mm-hmm. It was good to see that video to kind of put it in perspective because it was, it's basically yeah. a bunch of front side mechanic stuff. Um, well, front side mechanic, plyo to then mm-hmm. basically prime times and sprints. Uh, but it was a good, quick uh, drill to get him fired up for spring. So I, I like that a lot. Um, I think my, the, what I liked about that, the, <clears throat> with that, uh, atomic workout is that it kind of put it all in one and just and what i mean by that is it it broke it down mm-hmm. into hey in 15 minutes you can work on speed and i can put that anywhere whether it's my workout whether it's a coach's workout it doesn't matter uh, you can easily find 15 minutes a couple times a week to do it the uh the atomic workout just because it's been a while but i know i've read it it was 10 five second exercises or movements or whatever right and then two like 40 yard sprints separated by five minutes yeah you can crank that out any any time so going with uh with cal Dietz's uh skill optimization window article on xl athlete do we feel like we are personally doing that right now within our own workouts right in some capacity like uh are are you guys starting with some sort of speed drills in your warm-ups that eventually lead into kind of like your lifting like are we already doing mini atomic workouts or as i'm saying this or as you're reading that does that kind of make you think like oh why can't we incorporate some of these drills in in our warm-ups and then have some sort of you know whatever measured or tested uh because that's kind of where my mind went not only for us in a in a weight room or on the field but also telling our coaches like hey the first 10 minutes of your practices are already crap (laughs) here's something that you kind of do to enhance it or make it better yeah i've spent a, a little bit of time doing something close to that but not as much as as maybe I should, and I, you know, this, this, the, I guess the field work I want to spend more time on Mm -hmm. and less time in the weight room. 
more sprinting. But uh, as far as the warm up goes, I've the last uh, couple of years I've included, you know, I always start with some breathing and some mobs and things like that. But maybe yeah, I'm yeah. spending too much time on those. And I've always included some kind of dynamic movement. But then, you know, you mm-hmm. throw in some A skips and whatever, do that, and then a few sprints, and then it's into the weight room. That's always been the thing I've been doing the last couple of years. Um, but not maybe not as clearly organized and as much time spent on the sprinting aspect as I, I think I want to move toward. You you got the sunshine down there, Ross. What uh what's it what's it look like for you? Uh, I don't necessarily do that in the warm up every day. Um, the, if I, if I do field work outside, well, obviously field works outside. If I go outside, then yeah, I'll throw that in the warm up. Um, if I'm mm-hmm. inside, I will pretty much my kids do prime times almost every day. Uh, they're doing some sort of pogo jump, um, the, and then some sort of sprinting. Now I like the, so you know, with what Tony talked about, uh, when less spoke, it cleared up a lot of things for me as far as how do we progress, um, teaching sprint mechanics and like, like, where do we start? And naturally the front side mechanics is, is pretty big, uh, duh. But for me, the, the part where less cleared things up was like, all right, we need to start with the vertical, uh, being able to unload vertically before we're worried about, um, going horizontal. So when I say vertical, I just mean we're worried about posture and keeping that, which is obviously front side mechanics. And that is what all these drills do. So that really circled it for me. So I think that if you're implementing those front side drills, like Tony's got the fast March, a skip and the high knees, and you're doing it in that way, I mean, it's going to be well worth your time and it's super easy to do and, and make it part of your warm up. Um, versus mm-hmm. like I do the football warm up now and versus, you know, doing 50, yeah. 50 hamstring stretches, uh, in a row we're you know, we're doing different things to, to get the running mechanics styled. No, I like that. I like that. It's, uh, that's interesting. Like starting with the, the down the field stuff and the posture versus acceleration, like what you need to do to get into it. Ross, did they talk about posture at all? Yeah. 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 So they were, Les was talking about, um, again, starting with, with vertical AKA just posture. And then, which, which is not specific to Excel. Uh, but if I can't hold posture, then when I'm, when I'm trying to accelerate, I can't hold a straight line. Um, and that's, I can't hold the angles of the shin and the body when I'm driving, if I can't hold posture vertically. Mm-hmm. And that really yeah, yeah. clicked for me because mm-hmm. otherwise I wouldn't, that wouldn't have made sense. It's so, uh, again, you're hammering that in your warm up, and it's just a little easy thing to do. Um, and with the, with the vertical emphasis, it then, um, Les was talking about that's then where we're working on like our overhead drills where, whether it's a PVC pipe overhead, hands are overhead, things like mm-hmm. that. Cause we're getting, we're working the core, we're working the psoas and posture, uh, that way. 
and that was something I know, and obviously Chris, you've done that way more than I have, where yes, mm-hmm. you've told you have told me why, and I've had other people <laughs> tell me why we do these overhead drills, but that that connection for me made it make the most sense of anything that I've personally heard. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird thing, but yeah, it, it, it makes sense, right? Uh, the, the overhead posture, the way I have it explained is if you're holding something overhead, you can't wiggle your hips as much side to side, uh, just kind of locks you sort of in. Uh, and if you're reaching up, you can't be leaning forward a ton um, and kind of that pushing max speed stride which we don't want kind of turns you into that polling max speed stride which we do want so so with less's stuff uh putting posture kind of first and posture as the premium um did he talk about what he would do or he does in the weight room to kind of work on that right uh blair up in boston me in virginia we don't always have the ability to get outside so did he give some drills or uh, thoughts about s- stuff to work on not on the field? Yeah, so he didn't he didn't go into to weight room stuff really. Um, so I, what I didn't realize is that he uh, interned or worked under or with Dan Paff for a while. Um, and that was one mm-hmm. of his mentors, which made everything make a lot more sense with him. <laughs> and so yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. but he but no, he didn't. He didn't talk about weight room stuff. It was more how can you make a system for developing speed, uh, both acceleration and mm-hmm. max velocity. And uh, I mean the okay. with a huge a huge line that he said or that I really liked was uh, powerful outcomes are delayed, and that's something that that was personally again it stuck out for me powerful outcomes are delayed in that, okay, I'm going to, I got to think several weeks ahead of, or months ahead or whatever I got going on on these big stimuluses when these people are really going to see it uh, come to fruition. Cause that's when he got to talking about the learning curve and, or the motor, I should, sorry, the motor learning process and that, you know, the typical motor, motor learning process is right. I got my cognitive where I'm just picking it up associative. I'm kind of learning and figuring it out. And then autonomous after that, I don't, I don't need to think about it, which is great if I've never done it before mm-hmm. and I haven't learned that skill and been doing it a billion times, like trying to reach, reteach somebody how to skate. Okay. Well, now I got to go back. Uh, like if I'm teaching acceleration, all right, I got to go from autonomous. I got to think about what I'm doing to cognitive. I got to go, I got to be slower. I'm going to look worse and it's going to feel terrible to then climb my way back up and that's going to take time and a lot of trust and that type of deal. And that was mm-hmm. something he was hammering uh, with that. And then the, the other part for him was determining, all right, how can I, what do I need to measure? What can I automate? And then what can I, can I optimize? So what are the tests we need to do in order to, find the answers I need to have versus just testing the test. And then with that, mm-hmm. make, it as, make it as automatic as I can. And then obviously optimize that process back and forth. Um, 
I guess, Chris, to kind of somewhat answer your question is the three, the three big questions that he's going to ask yeah. for any kid is, are they fast? Okay. Yes or no. Uh, where are they not fast? So are they not fast beginning, middle, end, essentially? Uh, and determining where they're not fast, all right, then I need to develop the stimulus for that. So whether it's uh, first step out, the first five steps, whatever it may be, determine that's the stimulus I need to need to have. And then why are they, why are they not fast? Uh, fast at that spot so is it because of a physical reason is it because of a weight room type of deal or an output reason or is it because of a a technical reason like a form issue like a posture issue mm-hmm. so just depends i guess uh how you break that down yeah that uh, that helps and that makes sense because the main uh <clears throat> the main metric i'm looking at for speed is a uh, 10 meter sprint Right, so an an unresisted ten meter sprint, and then I try to break it down from there, and I like looking at the five, uh, zero to five, five to ten meters split, but I also like seeing how far can they get in one second, and like it shouldn't be a surprise that the person that gets furthest in one second, right, has the best acceleration, sort of wins the race. What I'm stuck on right now is somebody doesn't get far in one second. Is that a lack of strength, a lack of technique? Is it just bad body composition? And so what I'm trying to figure out is, can I, can I set these things up to start to eliminate that? So for example, I, I recently tweeted out a picture of somebody who had a bad left foot, right? So you could see um, with the 1080, the like power leak. So their first step, right foot lands, very stiff. Second step, left foot lands and the heel kind of collapses. All right. So I know he has a weak left foot, but sometimes I can't see other people's weak foot, right? So if you have a weak foot, it just, you're not going to project out as far. And then, uh, are you just weak? Do you lack isometric strength? Because that kind of helps you in the in early acceleration. And then too, like, do you just have bad body composition? Like, is there an ideal um, muscle mass, body fat percentage, height to weight ratio for good acceleration? That isometric strength is going to have a, a, a big factor into the posture too, especially sprinting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I like it. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of things to pull apart there. I'll, uh, I'll have to dive in a little bit more on his stuff and kind of see his, uh, yeah, just his, his, the way that he profiles and groups athletes. So the other, the other part that was a reoccurring, (laughs) yeah, the other part that, uh, was reoccurring and that seems to be reoccurring, not just from Les, but from a lot of the coaches and even the coaches that spoke all four of them actually is, at the end of the day, you got to get them fast first. Like that's, that's what it needs to be. Yeah. So like, don't look anywhere. Well, don't, I don't want to say don't look it's focus in on getting them fast first and whatever that looks like, then you can kind of worry about the, the nuance thing like Tony's like uh, Valani's deal of, 
yeah, I want them to be fast first. And then, hey, then we can kind of progress to these other little things, but they need to be, they need to be fast at the end of the day and, and getting that foundational strength or whatever, you know, whatever it may be to get them there, that needs to be done first before we really worry about all these other little things. Say, say that last part again. Uh, we need to get them strong enough to be fast first. Is that what you just said? I didn't say that exactly, but that sounds good. That sounds really good. All right. If, if my kid is getting stronger, cause obviously they're not, if, mm-hmm. if he's getting stronger and he's running faster, all right, we're doing, we're doing great. Now that's, I say that as a caveat because obviously top speed versus acceleration are two different things. But if you're timing enough, you know, enough flies at different distances, you know whether it's acceleration that's getting better or is it top end speed that's getting better? And is it a little bit of mm-hmm. both, right? Is it, are both getting better? You know, it just, it just depends. But yeah, getting, getting them, getting them strong. I mean, they got to be some sort of, strong in the first place whether we we like it or not and and it might be um isometrically strong and it might not be you know in our typical movement hey at this kid's split squat might not be the strongest but isometrically they can hold it hold the most weight at everybody else okay that makes sense what do you think the priority is for a young athlete spending more yeah. time sprinting like working on that kind of speed to get fast that kind of speed to get fast yeah that makes sense or uh spending more time just working on getting strong i mean it doesn't take much when the kid's young to get a little bit stronger but working on that speed side where where should we focus do you think guys oh well i was hoping that uh (laughs) one of your guys there kind of gave the answer (laughs) That's what I was looking for because I, I basically have the same question, Blair. Uh, and my question is, what if they're just bad at everything, <laughs> right? Like we all we all have that athlete who is just super slow, max velocity, super slow in acceleration, and they're just really, really weak, right? Where do you start? Uh, so for me... I've always had the biggest bang for your buck of getting them as strong as possible in the positions and shapes that they are going to get in during a sprint. And I go back to this all the time. I really think that the Caldeet style, you know, floating heel, front foot elevated, whatever you want to call it, uh, split squat is the best way to do it. Like, can you hold with just your body weight in the bottom of a split squat for 30 seconds. And then I also like a uh, Chris Corfist inspired um, just standing on one leg with your hips in a good position, making sure that your leg on the ground, that hip isn't flared out. So my thing is suck your hip over heel and make sure you could pelvic, you know, uh, tilt or hip hike your opposite hip in the air uh, because we need a good hip hike as we're going through top top speed mechanics. So to me, I think that's kind of the start. Like if they can't hold their body weight in a split squat, if they can't stand on one leg um, without their hip getting blown out to the side, 
they're they're just it just is what it is. You're not going to be fast. And those so those are kind of my foundations of where I start. Get them strong in a split squat. Get them strong on standing on one leg, and that kind of helps the posture and the positions. It's my thought, but hmm. uh, um, yeah. So you don't think three sets of ten goblet squats are gonna? <laughs> yeah. No, it's gonna. Yeah, it. Those are necessary with a young athlete, or uh, you know, just someone who's kind of crappy. But uh, I think having them sprint, timing it so they could work on intent, and then yeah, put them put them in the shapes that we want. So that's what's nice about that floating heel is it's strengthening your foot in the position that it will yeah. be in during early acceleration, right? When you're smashing your foot into the ground with as much force as possible, if you could hold it for 30 seconds and then you could add weight on top of that, it's going to en- enhance the strength of your foot and the positions and the postures and all that. So to me, that's, that's gotta be the start, but, uh, yeah, I've, I've been wrong before in the past, so so we'll see. But yeah, that's that's the the big question I have is like, you know, did did any of these guys this weekend say, hey, if you have someone who tests terrible and everything, start here? Hmm. No, they did not. To answer that question, uh, yeah. Well, and it was funny, um, un unreal, well related, uh, when Joey G was talking about doing doing his field the different stuff that they're doing where it's really uh customizable to position groups players strengths mm-hmm. weaknesses things like that he was he, he was just in the middle of it he was like look you high school guys if you're by yourself you can't do this like you just can't like it's just not feasible you know because i don't have super fair four to five dudes and he's like you can do you know a little bit of it but you it would be very hard to do it to that depth if you don't have some sort of help uh, on the field to help or in the weight room to coach it up. But, but no, none of them uh, spoke about that. Um, I'll say this from, from being one year into working at a high school and seeing middle school kids through high school kids. I will say Mm. that I, I have uh, shifted a bit since Liberty and working with the college kids in that I, there, there, there is a nice intertwining. I think you need to do of, of working the fundamental strength, but then I'm also jumping them and sprinting them and putting them in those different positions. Cause I think mm-hmm. with, at least again, with my school, at least in the kids that I have, there's a lot of them that aren't the most coordinated and they're and they're not necessarily yeah. playing a bunch of different sports like baseball in Florida is the thing and as we all know baseball is not this athletic developer and so uh yeah i got i got kids that can you know catch and throw something but trying to move you know they're not they're not able to or really able to run and so i think Again, you've got to intertwine the foundational movement and, yes, the strength work. I mean, I know for my kids, my high school kids that are in my class, um, the only things that we did, our main movements for literally the entire year was uh, barbell RDLs, trapboard deadlifts, and bench. And then Mm -hmm. I I rotated through 
um, two or three different like unilateral squat variations. So I didn't necessarily yeah. hammer squat a ton. I mean, yes, we squatted, but I put them in different situations. Um, but case in point is the three measured ones I did are again, RDL, trap bar, deadlift and bench. And that's all we did. And I just pretty much varied, varied the load throughout the year. But I had kids that would put on average, it was like 60 to pounds on their RDL for the guys for the, for the year. And I had guys Crazy. with, with up Crazy. with upwards of a hundred pounds. Now the hundred pounds is basically because of technical cleanup. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they went from, you know, taking 195 and their backs rounding to now taking 275, you know, three, 300 for reps and being technically sound. And crazy. So you can see the, the difference. So I, I think it's important, but I think it, it's only, it's only important if I am doing it with jumps and sprints and things like that. If I'm just doing it by itself, then that's a, a different deal. Yeah. Right. Ross, something that uh, you just mentioned and Chris mentioned before too was was measuring, and obviously I think mm-hmm. that that's a big part of you know the big picture um, as far as getting anyone better, right? If you're not measuring things, and I know I I personally think that you measure as good, if not better, than anyone uh, as far as your tracking of of Agreed. data. Yeah. Um, yeah, without that intent and someone there measuring you know there's not going to be as much improvement as there definitely definitely could be um you do a great job of that with all your lifts your your key key lifts and then also your your jump collection and uh i'm sure sprints and then chris you got the 1080 which is just like what the heck man now i'm drowning drowning in data (laughs) So every day I'm like, gosh dang, I need a I need a good nerd to help me with this. So uh, Chris. So yeah, yeah, yeah. With your 1080, obviously I don't have a 1080. And nor does, you know, yeah. 99% of the population. But uh uh-huh. yeah. Like for me, I I just have a jump man and I have dasher, you know, and and mm-hmm. those are pretty straightforward metrics. For you in that 1080 and, you know, with all the stuff that you're doing, what is like the one, two or three key things that you are tracking with that thing? I know it gives you a billion things of information, but. Yeah. So I I could go, go on forever of things that I hope it could track and I, I'm going to experiment like crazy on. Like I'm really, really caught up on this. Can I measure feet with it? Uh, so I have some thoughts there maybe for another podcast, but I have just found that the further you can get in one second, the better your projection, the better your first couple steps, the better your explosive, whatever we want to call it, the faster you're going to get to 10 meters. And I'm primarily able to measure 10 meters it fits really well very safe in the hallway at the ice rink and so when we're measuring the uh, time to get to 10 and then the distance at one second it lays out a pretty good profile of who's strong enough in the acceleration and then who could kind of make it up in in the last half there uh 
I don't feel safe going over 10 meters at the ice rink. And again, that's where we're primarily sprinting. So it keeps it simple. Uh, I look at the 10 and then I look at distance at one second. And every now and then I'll break out from zero to five and from five to 10. But yeah, for as many things as it does, uh, mostly that's what I track and measure. And then I use those times and distances at to one second to individualize. And that's kind of the power of it. It's a phenomenal testing tool, but the training capabilities with it is pretty awesome too. So if I run a uh, short program, then take a kind of a max on them, then I'll use that to uh, add, add in a resisted or assisted program. And it's just like simple. Everyone gets better. The intent is super high. It's super specific to the individual for what they need. Yeah, it's just, it's solid. So yeah, not to kind of make it sound simple, but I look at the time to 10 meters. Uh, I look at the mechanics as they're going to, because that's pretty important. And I look at uh, distance to one second. And then, and then too, like it gives a printout of, I, I could look across that 10 meters, uh, a printout of like their their power production, their speed, and their force. And so if I see leaks in power halfway down, uh, so at like meters four through six, I could I know mechanically something's wrong. So I get a good visual uh, and then a good time and a good distance to one second. How many, uh, in 10 meters, how many steps do your guys usually take? Oh, good question. Uh, it's always different. I'm going to say around seven, seven to eight. Okay. But I could be way off. Yeah. So Les's other point was, um, that 40% of speed is, is reached in the first two steps. And then 80, yep. 80% of your top speed is reached between three and 10. So I would be, I would just be mm -hmm. curious, you know, what, how quick your guys are getting to 80, right? Uh, again, is it that eight to 10 or whatever? So keep in, keep in mind too, uh, uh, we won't mention this high schooler's name, but I've done hundreds and hundreds of 10 meter sprints with, uh, my men's and women's hockey team and a high school athlete, uh, in the area came in one day and blew them all out of the water on his like very, very first ever attempt. I so bet he did there. Yeah. There's uh there's some differences Uh, again. Yeah. Won't, won't mention the name, but you guys know who I'm talking about. So as much as I love the boys here, we're not, uh, we're not land-based athletes. We kind of just put it that way. Yeah. It, when, when that kid ran that time, I was like, Oh, all right. That's uh that's why you are who you are. That makes sense. That's awesome. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's awesome. But yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the step rate and everything I, I could definitely look at, but it's, it's amazing to watch how much force decreases within the first two steps. It's really step one, step two. And then from there, it's like all velocity based. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just shocking. Um, 
when you set the metrics to look at force across the entire sprint. It's nuts. Ross, what other uh, key key takeaways can you pull from the clinic? What else do you have? Anything that yeah, stands out so, that you remember? Yeah, so for since Chris was talking about the first two steps with less, uh, like I said, vertical, getting the posture down. Uh, then it was the horizontal aspect of getting the shape down and getting my angles right. Because if mm-hmm. I can't, uh, again, pos- posture is going to unlock anything acceleration-wise. If you've got a poor accelerator, they probably have poor posture vertically, which then led to projection, the first two steps, and then led to then the resisted Excel stuff, the obviously the steps three, three through 10 or so on and so forth. Um, the other interesting part uh, and a super detailed thing was um, by your like seventh or eighth step, your shin is vertical. And that was something that mm-hmm. I didn't want. I didn't know. But his, the the other point of it was that the torso is still uh, rising at that point. So it's still straightening out. Now it's not like bent over and totally out of the way, but it's not upright, completely upright at the same time as the shin. So it was just interesting when they were just talking about teaching your kids not to stand up straight immediately and getting that, the teaching that slow rise as they go. Cause I know for, again with my kids and I'm not and I'm not coaching my kids super hard technique wise um, for me I've just been really coaching honestly the first couple steps and then after that they're kind of on their own and figuring it out but it's interesting uh, my bet my best naturally my best runners do a really good job of of keeping the torso down longer and then my slower cats mm-hmm. are just upright, basically, by the, the first couple steps. And Les has uh, had a good cue for it of push push yourself low so that I'm pushing, I'm pushing so hard forward that I can stay low because my foot is still is keeping me there, if that makes sense. Uh, but I thought that was, a, that was a really good cue for that. And the two, and his other two points, and it's kind of the last things I'll say at least for the for Les's things of was uh, the projection piece, torso and hip projection. And then the, the negative step is what he called it or the, the push backwards. So you're having good ground contact times and then really directing the forces uh, horizontally, which again, being the two keys of acceleration for him. Um, then he gets into his drills, his drill categories, um, which again, overhead drills, uh, some dribbles, wickets, flies, sprints, and then um, yeah, just kind of talked about that stuff a little bit, and then some stuff he's doing on the um, with an with some app and like recording kids and being like uh, rank ranking kids and all this thing. It was pretty cool, but yeah, then um, uh, Joey G spoke after that, and his was uh, I really liked his because it was it was a little more. Uh, practical and applicable to my everyday life i mean don't get me wrong the less's stuff was really good but joey's was was solid and chris he kept saying to uh reference back to uh science and practice so apparently we need to brush back up on that again nevertheless he uh was just 
his big message was making sure that you are training your athletes for their sport and actually getting them getting them ready for it. And obviously that's through the lens of mm-hmm. dealing with division one football freaks and, and being able to prepare them, prepare them accordingly. Um, gotten to mm-hmm. having a, a layered approach is what he kind of framed it as just going from general to specific mm-hmm. basically. Um, and I really liked how he, um, when he broke down his weeks, how he aligned, I mean, it's stuff that we do anyway, as far as aligning my weight room work with my, my sprint work or my jumps or things like that. And, and trying to have similar, uh, ground contact times and goals of the workout. Uh, but he was labeling everything as either, uh, you know, rate of force development, peak force, stretch sorting cycle, all that stuff. But I liked how that was labeled because that just cleared up a lot of things. And like when I was texting you, Chris, because um, what I do now is I, I naturally kind of work from slow to fast during the week of starting with acceleration and kind of ending with uh, max velocity later in the week. But I have been pairing uh, my essentially strength work with my max velo day. And then I'm doing strength work Um, as well. My strength work as well on acceleration, um, which made sense. But he was just making the point that you really want to have your power stuff paired with your max velo day because that's more rate of force development, Mm -hmm. stretch sorting cycle. So that it more aligns better with the weight room goal. Um, and I think the strength is still good on those days. I think it really just depends if I got a kid that's strong enough and, and can produce power, then yeah, we can do that. I mean, for me, the I did some trap bar jumps and things like that this year, um, but I always did yeah. uh, a weighted jump on the jump mat holding 10-pound dumbbells through the the whole year. And I didn't change that mm-hmm. weight at all. And I mostly was doing that to see if, are we jumping higher with the same weight? Right. And I, and I, again, I didn't change any, any of the dumbbell weight and naturally the kids got up and that was in, obviously that's a little bit of some power work there, nothing crazy. Uh, but like I said, I was doing trap board jumps as well and, and different things there, but I thought that was a, that was a pretty big takeaway on the, the weekly layout. Yeah. I like that. And, uh, from James Smith's book, Applied Sprint Training. Uh, you could also think too, what's nice about pairing strength work on your acceleration focus day is you could also pair larger knee bend exercises on your acceleration day. And mm. then for your power work on your max V day, uh, you don't want as large ranges of motion um, cause it's kind of like your, your top end speed. So if you're doing your trap bar jumps, you could do them on your acceleration and your max V day, but on acceleration, maybe you reset on the ground every single time. And then for your max velocity day, they're just going into kind of a shallow dip and drive, uh, and not resetting and coming all the way down on the floor. So that way you're kind of pairing your, uh, knee angle a little bit more, um, which I, I thought was brilliant, uh, in James's book. And that's why for me in hockey, 
I only have one max V day and I have two acceleration focused days because hockey is an acceleration based sport. Uh, so I like to have more time with that larger knee angle. Yeah, that was a, that's actually, you know, I like that. that's, that's really good. I don't have any trap so, bars here, but I, but I would along with that. that, Ross, uh, tell us about your, your thoughts of your kids competing on the weekends, uh, and how you might kind of rearrange your, uh, your scheduling throughout the summer. Uh, cause I, I thought that was super interesting and I know you put it out there, uh, for other people to kind of give feedback. So what, what are you thinking with that? The question of the century is, is what it is. Uh, I think, yeah, <laughs> yeah. With the well, in Florida, it's unbelievable the amount of travel ball there is. Naturally, um, mm-hmm. like when uh, over over New Year's or roughly like the December January time, there was the most baseball players I've ever seen in my life walking around Fort Myers, Florida. Because there's two baseball facilities down here, and like everybody's on vacation, they've got some huge travel ball tournaments and all that kind of stuff. But like, I know at least one of our kids, one of our football kids, is going to play in five tournaments over summer. Um, which holy, you know, over an eight week period, that's pretty, pretty high. And so, yeah, and so, nevertheless, I know with a layout of Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, I know that I'm going to make Monday the change of direction, uh, tempo day, uh, to help recover from the weekend for my travel ball kids. Now don't get me wrong. Like I got plenty of kids that don't do travel ball and they just do their one sport, but I got enough, you know, soccer, basketball, baseball, all that stuff that are playing all the time all summer. Um, and if they're gonna, uh, coach Sparkman made a great point that if they're going to miss, they're pretty much going to miss Monday. Like that's going to be the big day that they miss the most and they'll probably make it to to Tuesday or Thursday. And I'm not really going to measure anything on Mondays other than, um, a readiness jump or some sort of jump. Like I, I haven't done readiness jumps Mm -hmm. with my kids, uh, this year. I just took a bunch of, of jump data, but I didn't do like cold, hey, you're going to come in and do a hand on hip jump or do three of them before warming up or anything. But I'm going to do that uh, over the summer. And I probably won't do anything with it unless I've got a kid that I had in class. It's more so just to see just to see what, what happens. But, but let Monday be the, the change of direction, tempo focus. Uh, Tuesday... I'm leaning toward max velocity on Tuesday and then uh, Mm -hmm. Wednesday being the acceleration day. Now, the caveat with that is I'm leaning toward max velo on Tuesday because, at least with football, because they also will be playing uh, seven on seven on Wednesday mornings. Mm -hmm. So they're going to do all that kind of stuff. And I don't want to do Excel Tuesday to then let them go basically play a game and then, Oh, Hey, we're going to do these long sprints the day after you just did seven on seven, um, and covered it yeah. and covered a bunch of yards. And so I'd rather, I'd rather hit it before and then come the next day for acceleration. I can, 
I can turn down the the intensity and all that kind of stuff as needed with the guys. And so and to make that day an Excel day. Um, the the part that I'm I'm trying to figure out right now is because a barbell RDL for me is going to be a main movement and it's not going to be an accessory. Yeah. And so where do I put it to not mess up the, the max velo to mess up the acceleration? I write, I mean, that's my big debate because what I like to do is I like to put trap art deadlift at the end of the week. Say like in a perfect world, I put that on Thursday. Now, that would also be aligning for me with max velocity. Now, since I have my max velocity on Tuesday, do I put it on Tuesday mm-hmm. and then I have my front squat or whatever on Thursday or my or like my RDL? Like that's my big debate is where can I put RDL in that week to not mess up all the other stuff? I, My opinion is you put RDLs on Tuesday because of the knee angle it's not a deep knee bend and you're really having to focus on posture and like positions of the hips as you're uh hinging at the hips so for me i think you save your trap bar deadlift your larger knee bend your larger knee angle for your strength acceleration day on thursday and i say you go um RDL, since it's definitely mo- more posterior chain dominant as well with your max velocity day, which should be more posterior chain dominant, right? Like you're going to be hitting the hammies hard in an RDL. You're going to be hitting the hammies hard uh, as you're trying to get a good fly time with the, the dasher. Hmm. And then, yeah, with knee bend, knee angles as well. I was thinking Tuesday too from a different angle though, and that's that you know, some kids hamstrings are just one of those things where if they're a little bit sore in the hamstrings better earlier in the week than later in the week. And, you know, if they're doing it often enough, they're going to be fine. But, you know, hammies are always one of those weird ones that kids don't like when their hammies are sore. And I think it's going to throw off their whole career. Now, do you worry about that going into my kids that are playing seven on seven football? on Wednesdays. I thought your <laughs> no. seven on seven was, tu- was, uh, Tuesday it night. No, it is the next day, Wednesday. Oh, 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 oh. And there's my problem. <laughs> if, if you dose everything properly, yeah, it shouldn't be too much of an issue. You know, like if uh, if you keep the the volume and the intensity lower, allow them to adapt, then you could simultaneously either increase intensity or volume or, you know, both along with increasing sprint volume and they should be okay. So like I'm I'm doing some something similar on Wednesdays is my big sprint day. And right now we're only doing four sprints. Right, like I want their body to adapt. It's only May. I have until August, so I'm just slowly introducing, you know, distance volume to them because I got time. Because I don't want them to be sore. Because then they feel like something bad's gonna happen. But yeah, if you if you introduce it slowly, I, I 
I don't see why you wouldn't be okay. Like these kids are in high school, right? They're in the prime of their life. <laughs> you know, they'll they'll recover. They should anyway. Yeah, and if they were if they were in my class, they pretty much don't get sore from RDLs anymore. Like they just Yeah. It's what we do. Perfect. Now if they were not in my class, yep. which is a lot of them potentially, they they uh they might be a mm. little sore. Um, but yes, I mean the, the other, the other little nugget from, from Joey G was, uh, making the point of hitting, hitting lactate work once a week due to their, their Mm up-tempo offense. Um, and I thought that was just an interesting thing and and mentioning, uh, again, feeling that, uh, all right, I don't want to you know, kill them with it and, and bathe them in it, but just to have them touch it and feel it. So that way they've, they've got that, that feeling there. I I agree just from like the athlete perspective, right? Like they don't know what we know. And if you're giving them a little dose of that hard, they, they all love it. You know, they, they hate it, but they think that's what they need. Mm-hmm. Right? Like no, no athlete is going to go do more, low intensity aerobic work but they're gonna find the assault bike or push push a really heavy sled feel that burn go do some crossfit workout to make themselves feel crappy and that's what they think they they need so might as well give a little little taste of it i uh i i don't do it (laughs) but like i get it 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 makes sense oh i guess you could say i do i have them holding holding split squats for 30 seconds you're going to develop some some acid there did uh did joey g touch much on the the weight room or was it more geared towards like the on-field uh sprint stuff uh it was more categorizing things and saying hey the goal of you know the goal of today is peak force rate of force development stretch shortening cycle what you know whatever uh deceleration like that was you know not specifically on the movements um no but it was just hey you can you categorize them and you know this is the goal and just match them up uh accordingly on those on those days Mm -hmm. the other um little bit that was just and it's totally and it's just specific to football is that he was making the point that your big mids, which are tight ends, defensive ends, and your outside linebackers, uh, mm-hmm. run have way more yardage than what you would think for their positions. He was saying that, like, they have like 70, 7,200 game yards, which is a lot. And it's pretty much because yeah. a lot of those guys are on um, special teams and they are. Uh-huh they're running and they're still running routes like an outside linebacker is chasing down people a tight end is running routes but they're also again special teams and doing those things and so the the game yardage mm-hmm. does does add up but that was that was kind of the last little thing from him everything else was um normal stuff uh but again it was just kind of putting it in a system and making sure everything aligns uh at the end of the day um and then uh, the last last speaker was obviously Tony Villani and he's got all, all of his, uh, game speed and, and footwork stuff. And it's super, super interesting. And the, 
I think the biggest takeaway from 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 Tony at the end of the day is just understanding what top speed is versus what game speed is and understanding that your your athletes in order to effectively change direction can't be running at top speed like they have to know and feel what the right uh speed is to change direction effectively which just takes time um and that was that's kind of the gist of it from and i've gone through his course and you know different things and i like it a lot uh but I do think it boils down to teaching the kids one leverages and, and putting them in the right positions, but two, you need to teach them and you can do it through laser timers. You can do it through whatever that this is the speed you need to hit in order to move the, the fastest, but to be able to also to change direction the fastest. And then he got into, I mean, gets into the footwork and like the three, basically the three ways to change direction and um and if you are plan if you have planned change of direction then you should have perfect steps every time right if i'm a receiver i should have the exact perfect yeah, yeah, step yeah. and that cuz i am the person that is determining where the db is going the db is reacting off of me and teaching and then I guess we go for before I go on that tangent, and it was something me and Joe or Joe brought up, uh, Stakowski brought up when we're talking about this is it's hard to teach this, I think, to high school kids. Not saying you can't do it. The I think there is levels though in the fact that teaching a super athletic kid that can pick stuff up really well and feel leverages. After the fact, they've learned a bunch of other habits to get to this point. Like if they just have awful change of direction mechanics, it's going to take time and they've got to want to learn it. But if I catch these kids before they ever get to that point, then heck yeah, like this, this is really good. And it's still yeah. really good to take the time to teach your high school kids. It just might take a little bit for it to, to hit. But I think, again, if you take the time to, to teach it, I think the biggest goal at the end of the day is getting them to understand that you can't be full bore if you're going to change direction. I always think of stuff like that in terms of like hockey drills. Uh, never played hockey and never coached it, but uh, being the weight room guy, I always think like, okay, how is this going to transfer onto the ice? And so I was just thinking for your middle school kids, early high school and like shoot even high school, you could set up like a, a chase drill, right? So like one guy in front, one guy behind, like a yard, two behind. And then the uh, the leader has three or four options, you know, run run five yards, run seven yards. And then it's like a direct cut to the left, a direct cut to the right, something up to the left, something up to the right, whatever. And so the leader is going to choose where he goes, the chaser, uh, has to go hunt them down. And so set like cones, like narrow parameters of like, you have to run in this lane, this alley, right? So you come up to like a T and then there's like a cone alley that they have to sprint down. And at the end, there's like a dummy that you tag or whatever. So that'll teach the leader like, oh, if I run too fast, I go outside the cones, 
if I run too fast, uh, I can't change direction as quickly. And especially for the guy who has to react, you can't be going full tilt because then you're going to be off balance or you won't be able to break down and change direction as well. So yeah, I think you could tease that out with like a fun game that makes it competitive uh, and creates that, that maximal intent. I think, I think too, with young athletes before, you know, kids get even get to high school or through high school, like talking about games, what better than playing multiple sports that all have different, Mm -hmm. you know, changes of direction, different styles of play, like, you know, lacrosse soccer the m- amount of different changes changes yeah. of direction and change of speed for those sports tremendous baseball you know not so much but you're still running the bases you're still chasing down balls so there is change of direction yeah basketball and, and, yeah. And you're obviously accelerating quite a bit mm-hmm. you know um basketball too yeah phenomenal so you know if you get any combination of those sports and then in high school you're playing football yeah. Well, boom, you're point. probably running pretty good. Yeah, and it was teaching. I mean, he and the thing that I like about Volani a lot is that he clearly is coaching it, and he's got a lot of uh, applicable drills to teach, you know, every little thing that you're trying to do. Um, and, and being able to teach a kid inside-outside leverage, where am I putting my feet? Uh, but at the end of the day, it's just it's coming back to – repetition with any with any of that stuff it just it's going to come to repetition and how are they going to react when they're not when they're not thinking about it and, but but it was good yeah. i mean that was i i was glad that i had uh done that course and whatnot and and being able to go through it i mean i'm definitely going to use mm-hmm. bits and pieces uh of it and kind of install it and see see how it goes see how it progresses because the summer is really the only time i can do field work realistically. Um, I can do mm-hmm. stuff in a gym and and do small footwork things, but the full full bore uh, field work I can do it in the summer. But outside of that, can't can't necessarily do it. Kind of went through all the speakers' thoughts and kind of went back and forth. But give me your biggest, most practical kind of takeaway, Ross. You're you're driving home. And you're fired up. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try this. I'm gonna do that. Uh, what was your your big one? Uh, I think it was I think it was Les's stuff of stacking the drills in like mm-hmm. in the combination of of Tony's let's say atomic workout and that kind of natural progression in your warm up. Yeah, and then being able to mm-hmm. understand why you know why is it like that. <laughs> with due to less's pyramid of of drills and hey this is why we need to to do this first because quite frankly uh before less bringing it up and chris even you telling me i don't i did not understand a bit about the overhead running at all and like (laughs) just like asking and just ask and even asking uh i've asked different coaches and different track coaches Mm -hmm. And many a times they're like, (laughs) it works core. I'm like, great. That doesn't help me understand why (laughs) we're like doing that. Now, the fact that, all right, if we can't unlock it vertically, if I can't get the posture and whatnot, then I can't (laughs) hold positions to horizontally accelerate. 
Now that mm-hmm. that for me has made the most sense in the Makes world. Sense. But before that, it's like, guys, this isn't helping me out whatsoever. Uh, but yeah, I, I would say less of stuff. And again, being able to build the the drills, like uh, the buildup of, all right, I got the overhead drills to get posture. Um, dribbles was the next one. And then it was wickets to the flies to the full sprints. Like, again, just giving that little system and, and building up the the front side mechanics and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that was probably my biggest takeaway. That was an awesome recap. No doubt. I'm, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure as we uh, continue these sessions more, more, you're going to be able to unload a little bit more for us. Going to give the classic comeback. That was huge. I need to change everything. <laughs> yeah. Blair, uh, any other questions or thoughts for Ross here recapping the clinic or anything we've talked about? No, I think we can wrap it up there. I think that's, I mean, I don't have anything else. And um, I don't know, what are we, an hour in here? I think we're good. 